We are all of us living our lives, thinking and feeling and doing all that we do out of some sort of identity. We are all of us always answering the question, often subconsciously, who am I? And answering that identity question, uh, even if we're not consciously aware of how we're answering that identity question, it determines everything. Everything that we do comes out of this, this identity that we perceive ourselves to have and to be. And so, who are you? I am asking both who are you objectively, as well as who do you feel and perceive and live out that you are subjectively? How do you answer the question, who am I? Last week, we began to look at the second part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's beginning now to pray directly for the disciples, but also then indirectly for us. We were supposed to look at 6 through 8 last week, but we didn't really get past verse 6. So I want to look at verses 7 and 8, specifically in connection with verse 9 this morning. There is a specific people that Christ prays for, and a specific people that Christ does not pray for. Understanding the identity of these two peoples, then, is really important. And leaning, uh, like last week, on Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm convinced that many of our problems and perplexities, our fears and frustrations, our struggles and sadnesses, result from a general failure to understand what a Christian really is. We have an identity problem. We don't understand the true, blessed, and glorious, and joyful, and stable, and secure identity of a Christian. And so what we're doing from these verses is we're seeking to better and more biblically understand and appreciate our identity in Christ. And I think we're justified in doing so because Jesus doesn't petition the Father for us until verse 11. Before that, in these verses, he describes us, he distinguishes, he discriminates in the positive sense of the term. He, he marks out those for whom he prays, his, his people. So do you know what a Christian is? And do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? And then do you know what that means for you and how to apply that to your difficult life? Four points to help us continue to consider and establish our identity in Christ. Let's make it more personal this time. Let's use personal pronouns. Point number one, we are the fathers. That's first and foremost. We touched on this a bit last week. This is our same first point, reworded, but this is the foundational one. We've got to learn to appropriate and appreciate this. Then point number two, we're going to see that we are of the word. Point number three, we are not of the world. And finally, point number four, we'll seek to apply a bit. Uh, Because of those things, we are secured and assured in who we are in Christ. What is a Christian? It is someone last week given by the Father to the Son. It is someone who is in a given relationship to the Word. It is someone who is not in a given relationship to the world. And someone who, knowing these truths, lives in the world through the Word, calm and confident, secured and assured because they are God's child. That's what we're going to do this morning. So I want you to be asking yourself as we go, what is your relationship to the Word? What is that like? And then what is your relationship to the world? What is that like? And which of them are you more like? Which of them more characterizes 
your life. And that will reveal to you your relationship to the Father. Let me read our text. I'm just going to pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 9. Jesus is praying to the Father. We're jumping into the middle of that prayer. I'll read John 17, starting in verse 6. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Let's ask for God to help us in this time. Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in your living and active word. I believe that your Holy Spirit works through that living and active word to reveal you to us, to show us Christ. Father, to save and to sanctify, to challenge, to comfort. Father, there are all sorts of things that we all need in this room this morning. Father, I am not capable of accomplishing those things, but you are, Lord, by your Spirit, through your Word. And so we ask that you would now work on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would do the things that we cannot do. Um, Father, I have nothing to offer apart from your Word and apart from your Spirit. And so we ask that you would do uh, your will in this time. Father, encourage the discouraged, uh, challenged, the overly uh, comfortable Rebuke the sinner. Father, save the sinner. Father, we want people to know Jesus. And we want to be as your people who, by your grace, already know Jesus. We want to know more and more what it looks like to live our lives in light of who we are in Christ. So, Father, please help us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number one, we are the fathers. Last week, our first point was that God's people are given by God. That was a weirdly worded point. This is the same point, more clearly worded. But we saw last time that Christ is quite repetitive. I justify my own repetitiveness with Christ's repetitiveness. We are supposed to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Not only do I tend to be uh, quick to speak and slow to listen, but I also tend to be quick to forget and slow to learn. So I need things repeated to me again and again and again before I begin to get them. Parenting is a practice in repetition. I am to teach and train and correct and discipline and affirm and enjoy my kids again and again and again. That's how children learn. That's how we learn. You have forgotten your identity in Christ frequently this week. You have forgotten that you are one given by God. And so I make no apologies in repeating myself and reminding you. We saw last time how many times Christ says this. Seven times in uh, this one short prayer, Jesus talks about his people as those whom you gave me. Verse 2, twice in verse 6, 9, 11, 12, 24. Look at verse 9 as that's our focus. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Here is the identity of those for whom Christ prays. Those whom the Father has given him. 
Why is this the people that Christ prays for? Well, the end of verse 9. He tells us, for they are yours. That's where our first point is coming from. Those whom you gave me and they are yours. Same thing. Same group of people. This is the first and foundational thing when it comes to the identity of the people of God. Your identity, if you are in Christ, you are the fathers. You are a child of God. Notice there in these verses all the possessive pronouns. That's a fairly self-explanatory term, right? A, a pronoun is a substitute word. It's a word that stands in for another word. So in verse 1, you see, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, right? So he is the pronoun. Instead of saying Jesus twice, you substitute the he, or referencing the Jesus. I was tempted to go on a tangent here and talk about our pronoun problem today. This is probably not the time, I guess. But as Christians who believe that words are meant to communicate truth and words are meant to correspond with reality and who believe that God created us and created us a union of body and soul and that that body, that your biology, is who you are. Your biology reveals who you are. Uh, your identity created by God. And so because of all of that, we can't have anything to do with the pronoun silliness that seeks to use pronouns that do not correspond with biological sex. We don't love anybody by participating in a lie. And so we cannot use false pronouns, whether they are preferred or not, and we should not be listing preferred pronouns in our social media profiles. We don't get to choose our pronouns as we don't get to choose our sex. We are to speak the truth in love, in love. We're not to bear false witness. Words matter, and so pronouns matter. So, so be wise as the world is screaming this thing uh, to you. Read it through the lens of Scripture and through Genesis and through God's creation and through his good uh, design. Let's, let's love people well by pointing them to the reality of how God uh, created them. And again, I'd be happy to talk with you more about that afterwards if you're interested. So I went on the tangent anyways. But a pronoun is a word that stands in and substitutes for another word. And so a possessive pronoun is one that indicates a relationship of ownership or possession. So in the middle of verse 6, Jesus says, yours they were. Yours is a possessive pronoun. Same in verse 9, for they are yours, possessive pronoun. Peek ahead to verse 10, look at this. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. That's four more possessive pronouns in rapid fire succession. Mine, yours, yours, mine. So six times in these few short verses, who are you? You are his possessive pronoun. In God's original design, who you are was to be determined entirely by whose you are. It is only when you reject and deny whose you are, and that's what sin is, it is only uh, when you do that that you are left to yourself and forced to try and create and sustain some sort of identity. The very thing that our, our culture screams at us and tells us is freedom. You be you. You follow your heart. Create yourself. Determine your own sexuality, your own gender. Construct and assert your own identity. 
actually not freedom at all. It's, it's slavery. It's not life, but death. Once you lose whose you are, you're left only with yourself. And that is a lonely and a deadly place to be. Because left to yourself, you are cut off from the very thing, the, the very person who is life. Who are you? How do you answer that question explicitly and implicitly, consciously and subconsciously? A Christian is one who belongs to the Father. A Christian is one who is God's. 1 John 3.11 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. If we are God's and he is Father, that makes us his children. That makes us sons and daughters. And fathers love their sons and daughters, especially daughters, of course. My girl's got me a girl dad shirt for Father's Day, and I, I love it. You'll see me rocking it proudly soon. But a good father delights in his sons and daughters. They are his, and he is glad. I've realized that part of my uh, vacation grumpiness is that I have to spend a significant amount of that time sharing those five girls with other people. No, thank you. Get me back home. Get me back to constant time with them, for they are mine, and I delight in them. And God here in our text says, mine. About us. Spurgeon says, the Father looks on us here as his portion, his possession, his property. I would do Spurgeon one better with some additional uh, adjectival alliteration. We are his precious portion and possession and property. Our last stop on the vacation slog was my parents' house. When they moved back into our hometown a few years ago, my sister uh, gave them a copy of Psalm 1819 to put up on the wall in their new home. And so every time I walk through their kitchen, I read, he brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because, anybody know it? He delighted in me. That's good. I get Give me more of that. That's what I need to be reminded of. Just jot these down and go back to these this week. Psalm 149, verse 4. Catch this. For the Lord, for Yahweh, takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Isaiah 62, verse 4. You shall no more be termed, termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Jeremiah 32, 41, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good. Zephaniah 3, 17, this one. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What? I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe that that's actually there in Scripture, in the Old Testament? You know, mean, grumpy Old Testament God. No, not at all. Uh, these verses honestly make me a little bit uncomfortable, but, but again and again and again we read about God the Father's delight 
and pleasure and joy in his people. I will rejoice in doing them good. That's what it means for you if you are his. God himself in some mysterious and wonderful way rejoices in you and takes pleasure in you and delights to seek and pursue your good. And we all know how affirming and life-giving it is for someone you value and love and trust to noticeably love you and enjoy you and clearly want to be with you. Parents, this is what you have to communicate to your children. Yes, they desperately need your instruction. Some of them, in particular, desperately need your correction and discipline. But all of that must be drenched in your evident and obnoxiously repeated affection and love for them. Right? They crave your affirmation and acceptance and attention and evident delight in them. Fathers, if you're providing for your kids, great. Are you enjoying them and delighting in them and spending time with them and making that clear? We have all of that in the Father God himself. Six possessive pronouns, mine. Again, that's an identity. That's what you need. That's what you need to know about yourself. Nothing else matters in comparison. Our problem is that we don't know what a Christian really is. This is what a Christian really is. God's cherished and treasured possession. His Chosen by him before the foundation of the world. Before you are a sinner, you were his. Set apart by him to be the object of his unfailing covenant love. A love, Ephesians 3.18, so wide and high and long and deep that Paul has to pray for you to have the spiritual strength to be able to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let me read for you Spurgeon here again. It's a couple of lines. It's a little long, but it's so worth it. Spurgeon says this, You have not any notion how much God loves you. Dear brother, dear sister, you have never yet had half an idea or even the tithe of an idea of how precious you are to Christ. You think because you are so imperfect and you fall so much below your own ideal that therefore he does not love you much. You think that he cannot do so. Have you ever measured the depth of Christ's agony in Gethsemane and of his death on Calvary? If you have tried to do so, you will be quite sure that apart from anything in you or about you, he loves you with a love that passes knowledge. Believe it. You have no notion of how much God loves you, of what it means to be his. We are the fathers. Believe it. You need nothing more than you need uh, to understand and appreciate what it means to be his. What it means to have his identi your identity fixed and established as a son or a daughter of God. A PhD or running fast or fit or healthy or whatever your thing is that you're like, look, 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 I matter. I've got these things. Whatever that is, who cares? Who cares in comparison to this? Mine, God says. What if we could root our identity in that and live out of that? Point number two. Now, all that sounds wonderful, but it could sound a little high and lofty. It is. 
But what does that look like down here in real life? How does that identity play itself out and show itself? How do we respond to that and appropriate and and actualize this glorious identity? Well, that's verses 7 and 8. We are of the Word. Last week, we considered the kindness of Christ's words at the end of verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. He's talking about the disciples here. And he says, they have kept your word. That's amazing. They've constantly misunderstood him. They have sometimes questioned and opposed him. They are about to abandon him. And Christ says, they have kept your word. What can that mean? Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. What is the everything that you have given me there? It's the word. It's the words of Christ. Look at verse 8. He tells us, For I have given them the words that you gave me. Stop. Note the progression here in verse 8. Note the, the word chain or the life chain. The Father gives the word to the Son. The Son gives the word to his disciples. The disciples receive the word from the Son. What does that mean to receive the word? It is to know and believe the word from the Son. And later on, we'll consider the rest of the chain. Look down at verse 20 just for a second. In verse 20, remember shifting, this is the third part of the prayer now. He's talking now specifically about us. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, the church, who also believe through the word. So there's the chain even further. The Father gives the word to the Son. The Son gives the word to the disciples. The disciples give the word to us. And we, by the sovereign grace of God, believe and what? Live. It's the whole point of the book. 2031. These are written, these words, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What Jesus calls the abundant life in 1010 that he came to bring us. I'm almost hesitant to even ask, but are you experiencing this abundant life? I'm hesitant to ask and even use the language abundant life because of how often it has been misused and abused and polluted and perverted by the prosperity gospel. The abundant life is not a life of strength and success. It is not a life of ease and entertainment. It is not a life of comfort and convenience, power, position, prestige, prosperity. It's so much better. But I want you to see for now uh, simply how central the word is to what Jesus is doing here. And that's because of who God is and who we are both in creation and redemption. We are the fathers and he is the God who speaks. He is the God who creates and sustains reality with his word. Parents, why do your children need those words of acceptance and affirmation and love constantly from you? Because that's how God created the world to work. We live on words. We're we're fueled by those words from other people. And so we are made by God and for him. We are then made by words and for words. For he's the God of words. He has woven the very fabric of his world with words. Psalm 19, the heavens declare, it's a speaking word, the glory of God. The sky above proclaims, it's a speaking word. 
His handiwork, day-to-day pours out speech. Why is that? Because it's all made by and made up of God's words. And so God so identifies himself with his word that when we get to John 1, echoing Genesis 1, you know this, we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in 114, we find that this word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. The world was created by the word, and then it was invaded and inhabited by the word himself. God has come in the flesh. Jesus Christ has entered the world that he has made to reveal the Father to us and relate the Father to us. And words are at the very center of it all. Jesus comes speaking and teaching, and the words that he speaks and teaches are the very words of God the Father himself. Look at John 12, 49 and 50. This is what Jesus says in John 12, 49. What are these words? He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. That is to say, and, or what to say, and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Christ, multiple times throughout John, says, he's very clear. I only speak what the Father told me to speak. My words are the Father, God's words. This is why we are so obnoxious and insistent about the inspiration and the inerrancy and the authority and the necessity and the clarity and the sufficiency of Scripture, of the very words of God. This is why I introduce every single Scripture reading with pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. This is why I keep saying, hey, look at verse whatever, because that's the important part, that you look there and make sure my words are explaining those words. This is why we pay close attention to even the individual words of Scripture, like possessive pronouns. All of the 6,000 words that I am communicating to you today, 6,400, are supposed to be for the express purpose of drawing your attention and affection to these few words of Scripture. Why? John 6. Go to John 6. Let's look there for a second. I'm going to give you more of God's words. In John 6, Jesus has been teaching hard things. Jesus has been making big, bold, controversial, and confrontational claims. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is the bread of life discourse. Now look at verse 53. This is where it gets crazy. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What? It sounds crazy at first. You're visiting here, and you've never been to church before. That's, that's weird. And, and what does this have to do with words? 
Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That sounds about as far away from words as possible. What does Jesus mean? Verse 40. Look at verse 40. He tells us. One of the great tricks of Bible interpretation is often just keep reading. Context. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Have you fed on the flesh and drank the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you looked on him and believed on him? Because that's what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's, it's faith. In Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is all why Jesus can say in 17, 6, that the disciples have kept his word. They are a bumbling bunch. Theirs is a weak faith. They get much wrong, but by the grace of God, they get the main thing right. They believe. They trust the Christ in the words of the Christ. And so back in John 6, when the Jews start arguing and even some of Jesus' followers turn back and stop following him because of these hard words and bold claims, Jesus turns to the disciples and asks them, hey, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answers in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They demonstrate that they are of the word, as is anyone in Christ, the word made flesh. If you are the fathers, then you are of the word. What does that mean exactly? What does that look like? Three quick things. First, it means that you have been born again by the word. First Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Why do we preach the word and read? I read 51 verses in Sunday school this morning. Why do we read so much scripture? Because it does that. You can be born again through this living and abiding word of God. And so our only hope as preachers and teachers is that we read it and we read it and we explain it. And the whole time we're praying, God, please work through this word. Do the thing now that I can't do. God, save souls through this word. Word. But we're only born again through the Word. Hebrews 4.12, it's God's living and active Word. That means that it works. It does something. It is not dead, which does nothing, but it is alive, doing something. And so it is active, working, and accomplishing. And that which the living Word works and accomplishes is life. Our life. And so first and foremost, to be of the Word is to be born again by the word. Second, back to John 17, 8, uh, to be of the word is to receive the word. It is to know the word and to believe the word. Uh, some debate about this, but I think all of those are somewhat synonymous there in verse 8. It's, it's, it's faith. The only right response to God's word is faith. And note that I have listed this one second in the list of what it means to be of the word. 
I'm still trying to convince some of you that you still somewhat believe that the order of salvation is believe and be born again. And I am trying to convince some of you that that is dangerously wrong and it is harmful to your spiritual health. The biblical order of salvation is born again entirely by the grace of God, by the Spirit working through the Word, and then believe. We cannot see and believe when we are blind and dead. We cannot choose freedom when we are enslaved. The good news of the gospel is that God initiates our salvation. He causes us to be born again. He raises us to new life. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The whole thing is entirely by grace through faith. God initiates, we respond. God initiates, we respond. We are born again and we respond in repentance and faith. Have you believed? That's how you can know if you have been born again. That's how you can know if you are God's. You examine your relationship to his word and your faith in him through that word. And then third, uh, to be of the word means, verse 7, it means to keep the word. It means to obey the word. 3.36, whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus warns in 12.47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them. Some of you are really good at hearing the word, but statistically, I, I just know that some of you here are only hearing the word and not Number two, believing the word. And not three, here keeping the word. Not obeying the son. So to be of the word has to be more than to attend church. It has to be more than to be baptized. It has to be more than nodding along and assenting to some of the truths of the faith. It's an entirely new thing. It is a new life. It is a new, renewed, transformed nature. It is the very life of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit, working through the Word. And that, that life begins to take up residence in our lives. And that changes things. It changes how we think and feel and live. It gives us uh, an entirely new perspective on the whole of reality. Not perfectly. We are very much works in progress. But we are not what we once were by the grace of God. And that means that we cannot live as we once lived by the grace of God. And it is the word that makes all of this possible. Not just the saving, but the sustaining and the sanctifying, as we're going to see going forward. What is your relationship to the word? Some of you who are here with us this morning are, are not Christians, and you need only one thing. Uh, you need Jesus Christ. You need to look upon him and live. You need to repent and to believe, turning away from your sin and turning to him. You need to believe the gospel, the good news that is the power of God for salvation. And news is words. God says that there are these words that can save you. Words that are about the Christ who is life. The good news of the Son of God who came and took on flesh to take the place of sinners and live the life we were supposed to live and die the death we were supposed to die 
and then rose again so that we might be forgiven and live. There is forgiveness and there is freedom and there is abundant life and there is peace to be found in Christ. And it is only found in Christ. And so for you, your application is, is, is to look to him and, and to live uh, through this living and active word. And then look around you and, and find someone here who looks like they know what they're talking about and, and talk to them about it. Or find Pastor Mike or, or find myself and we would love to, to talk you through uh, what this means. But many of you who are in here are Christians by the grace of God. And some of you are having a really hard time right now. I have been. Let me ask you, how is your relationship to the word? I know I say this a lot, every week, in fact. But repetition, we forget, and so we need to be reminded. Consider honestly, how was your relationship to the living and active word of God this week? God works through his word. I have nothing to offer you apart from his word. I don't know what to tell you, what else to tell you, except that what you need, whatever your circumstance, whatever your suffering and sadness, it truly is found in Christ who is found in this word. It's really living and active. And the Spirit really does work through it. And I don't say any of that to, to minimize your troubles. That's not, I'm not saying that because you're saying that your troubles will magically go away if you read your Bible uh, tonight. No, it's not what I'm saying. And that's not how God tends to work. But you are still tempted to believe that the one thing that you need is for God to remove you from your problems. And he may do that, but he often doesn't. But what he does do is promise to be with you in all of your problems, no matter how big, no matter how long, and he does that through his word, and, let's make this clear, he does that through his word, through his people, through this and then what this is supposed to overflow into uh, throughout the rest of our, our weeks and our lives. Often God works by not removing us from our problems, but by putting people in our problems with us. And by being present with us through them and through his word. So I do hope your problems and your circumstances change and improve. We're going to pray at 1 o'clock uh, after the service. And we would love to pray for that with you. But what I most hope is that you and I would learn to rejoice in the Lord always, to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, to in all our ways acknowledge him, like David, to, to cry out to him in lament when things are hard, but trusting him and enjoying him even in the midst of those hard things. And that we would continue to grow as a church uh, and being better at walking with one another through these troubles with God's word. You know, we don't want to minimize or dismiss troubles. We don't want to give trite and easy answers. But we also don't want to forget who we are in Christ and what we hell, have held out to us here in God's word. We are of the word. And it is a wonderful word that is full of amazing promises about what God is going to do for you. It is a word that is full of God's promise. It's a word that's also full of God's providence. I've said this before, but those are two of the things that you most need in your troubles. You need to know God's promises, and you need to know God's providence. 
God has promised your good, and he has promised to work every detail of our life out for our good in his powerful providence. And that's what is yours if you are his, because that's what it means um, uh, if you are also of his word. Point number three, I'll be real quick here on these last two. If you are of his word, that means you are not of the world. And I pivoted a bit last week and decided to not give you a sermon about how terrible the world is. I decided to not give you a sermon about the blessed doctrine of Christ's particular redemption, uh, dying specifically for the saints. Those are good and true things that we need, uh, need to know. But I thought I would take it easy on you. And for now, all I want to do is one thing. Jesus says in verse 9 that he is not praying for the world. There's a whole lot more world to come in verses 10 through 16. And last week we considered the fact that biblically there are only two peoples. There are only two identities that matter. You're either not of the world or you're of the world. Or we could say today you are either of the word or of the world. God's people and not God's people. And last week we defined being of the world as life lived apart from and without reference to God. It is not so much about specific actions, but about a fundamental attitude and orientation. It is seeking to live in God's world and enjoy God's world while wanting nothing to do with God. And the Bible calls this foolishness, calls it folly. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and then lives his life in light of that as if he uh, himself were God. This is what it means to be of the world. But as we wrap up, I want to leave you focused, not on all the fools out there, not on how the world is defined by its denial of God and its seeking to live life apart from God, but I want to leave you focused on the folly in here, on the lingering and all-too-common tendency for us to live our day-to-day lives apart from God without reference to him. None of us would be professing atheists, but we are all of us all too often practical atheists. We are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. We are prone to forget that we are the fathers, sons and daughters of the living and loving, the powerful and present, the good and the gracious God. This is our problem. This is my problem. It is far too easy both when things are good and bad, easy and hard, to fall back into the folly of forgetting God and living life and facing circumstances apart from him. If you are in Christ, know that you are not of the world, but also know that it is all too easy for you to go back to living as if you were of the world, living without reference to the God of this world. And if being of the world means living life apart from God, that means also then living life as if the whole of life is confined to this world and this earthly temporal life and the few decades that we have here. This is what characterizes worldliness. And this is what still so easily characterizes us. Spiritual forgetfulness, uh, heaven heedlessness, eternity amnesia. When things fall apart, where do you look? What's your focus? 
Where do you set your mind? For me, it is still all too easy to look and focus and set my mind only on the immediate circumstances. The problem, the affliction, that still comes way too naturally. It actually takes work and effort and attention and the grace of God to begin to look above and beyond those immediate circumstances and disappointments and discouragements. The world faces troubles without reference to God, as if this life is all it is and all that matters, focused then only on those troubles, with its only hope being the end of those troubles. The Christian is meant to be different, not of the world. The Christian faces troubles entirely in reference to God and with God, knowing that this life is not all that there is, and that it is the life to come that really matters, and thus focused not first on the troubles, but on the God sovereign over the troubles. The God who is good and promises to bring good out of all those troubles. Having an eternal hope that is not rooted in the end of the troubles, but the end, as in the goal, that is the eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for us through the troubles. This at least is part of what it means to be not of the world. It means that we face these things differently than the world does. And we look at life and we live our life differently as the world does. We are of the word. That word is uh, full of God's promises. It teaches us God's promise, uh, providence. It's being worked uh, through, by, through the spirit of God. And it is, it's teaching us to set our minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Where is your mind set? And where especially is your mind set when things fall apart? The last sermon that I preached here before we went to vacation, I, it wasn't in my notes, but I said four times, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, uh, love, and I did it. It is not irritable. I had it once in my notes. For some reason, I did some weird thing, and I repeated it four times. It is not irritable. It is not irritable. It is not irritable. And then I was irritable, right? Uh, it was a couple, there was a couple of days on vacation where I was really irritable. And then one morning, after two or three days, like that verse and that sermon uh, the Spirit used that to, just to punch me in the face. It's a hypocrite. Hypocrite. And so here's that word that was implanted in my heart that I'm very good at ignoring and setting apart and forgetting that by the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in God's timing you used to say, ha-ha, look, look, here you are in your sin. Not to beat me down, but to remind me of who I am in Christ, to drive me back to His grace, and to remind me of why I don't have any need to be irritable if these things are true. So what don't you see? It's so easy. That was me living like the world for those couple of days as I forgot these things that I was just sitting there preaching to you about not long before. And I want you to see how easy it is for you to do that same thing. We all struggle with this. The solution is not to sit and stew in that struggle but it's to see that so much more is offered to us in Christ. He is praying for us here. We are not, we are objectively, by the grace of God, we are not of the world. And that means that you don't have to go on living like the world. That the Holy Spirit gives us the power to change and the power to live in light of what is true for us by the grace 
of God. And that's going to particularly demonstrate itself and reveal itself when we face the troubles and trials of this life. And all of it starts with better understanding and appreciating your identity in Christ as a child of the living God. If you're a Christian this morning, the main thing that I want you to leave here remembering is that you are his. You are his precious, cherished possession. You are the Father's, and he is eternally good. You have no idea how good he is. You have no idea how much he loves you. What then would it look like for you to go out these doors and to go into your work week and to go into whatever it is that is facing you right now in light of that identity, that thing that is true for you? You are not the world's by the grace of God. You are his and of his word. And that can, by the grace of God, change everything. And point number four, I'll just state it as my time is short If all that is true, that means uh, that we are secured and assured in Christ. This one's coming less explicitly from the text, to be honest. It's more an implicit conclusion and application of the text. But this is why Christ is praying out loud for the disciples to hear. This is why the Holy Spirit is preserving and recording this word for us to hear. This is why the content of his prayer, this is next week, his petition, which we finally get to, verse 11, keep them. Verse 15, keep them. I didn't even realize, Pastor Mike did this on his own. I hadn't even thought of that psalm that we read at the beginning. We're going to reuse that psalm next week because I haven't even thought of that. God promises that he keeps his people, and here Christ is praying God's promises for his people. What I want you to see here. Since this is the son praying to the father specifically for the people that the father has given him, people that he cannot lose, that means that the father must and will answer Christ's prayer. He must and will keep his people. He will keep you. And there is great security and assurance to be found there. It's not up to you. It does not depend upon you. You don't have to create some identity. You don't have to sustain, sustain some sort of value in your life or demonstrate to anyone or here's why you matter. Or all. No, you have this identity in Christ. That could change everything. So much of our struggles stem from the insecurity and the fear that we are still prone to live out of if we could only, by the grace of God, realize who we are in Christ. That, that insecurity would be crowded out. That that fear would be crowded out for we are his, safe and secure in his hands. And nothing can snatch us out of him. Romans 9, Paul is, Romans 8, sorry, Paul is sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's, that's a promise in God's word. That's the security and the assurance that you need. And that is available for all who are his, who are of his word, and who are not of this world. And so let me close this time now. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let's ask God to help us understand uh, who we are and what we have in Christ and to more and more uh, live out of those identities. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace to us today. Thank you for your grace to me. 
Thank you for the great privilege and opportunity that it is to preach your word. Father, we desperately need to hear your word. I desperately need uh, to hear your word. Uh, preaching is far easier than practicing. Father, we ask that you would take these words, your words, and apply them now to our hearts and, and to our lives. Father, of the almost infinite variety of needs that are represented in this room, we ask that you would work and meet uh, those needs individually according to what each person in here is facing right now. Father, help us to be aware of the identity that we uh, live out of for the identity that we seek to try and establish by our successes, by our social media, by our whatever it is that we do to try to, to show ourselves to the world as being uh, good and, and of value and uh, mattering. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the sin of those things. Forgive us for the sin that it is to seek to establish an identity apart from you. Forgive us for the unbelief that does not find great an infinite and eternal rest and joy and comfort and peace and the fact that entirely by your grace we are yours. We are sons and daughters of the living God. I pray that you would thrill us with that truth. I pray that you would help us to apply that truth to our work life this week, uh, to our family lives, to our relationship lives, to the, the good things and the bad things, the easy things and the hard things. Father, what would it look like to face all of those things as your children? who are not of this world, and who have your wonderful living and active word. Father, please help us. We pray especially for those in here who do not know you. Father, I pray that your word would do what only you can do. I pray that you would save sinners. Father, show us the, the misery of sin. Show anyone in here who does not know you how futile it is to seek to establish an identity apart from you. Father, show them the beauty and the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.